thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Live from the BBC, The Naked Scientists. You are listening to The Naked Scientists and it's me. I'm in charge. Ha ha ha. We've put Chris in a basement somewhere. That's a lie. Uh, you'll hear, be hearing from Chris later. It's me, Dr. Cat, and we're here with Dr. Sarah. Hello. And with the wonderful Mandy Morton, who's keeping all the filters open and the buttons pressed. Doing our best. Doing our absolute best. Chris is away in America at the AAAS Science Conference, and we'll be hearing from him later about what he's found out this week. And um, we're going to be back in the studio here talking about nature's medicine chest. How can plants cure us of all our nasty aches and pains? So for thousands and thousands of years, we've been using Chinese medicine over in in China and the West has sort of shunned this in favour of uh, conventional medicine. But we're going to be talking to Monique Simmons. Hello. Who's from Kew Gardens and she's going to be talking about researching plants to make drugs. So I'll be really interested to hear about that later. She's also running a programme to find out about people's recollections of herbal remedies. So maybe you could phone in with yours later. And also we're joined by Typing Fan. So hi, Typing. Hi, good evening. And he's from Cambridge University and is an expert on traditional Chinese medicine. And later we'll be hearing how he's been researching the chemicals in Chinese medicine that actually have their their effect. So if you've got any questions about uh, plants, making drugs from plants, do you have any herbal remedies of your own? Do you remember Granny poking you with some leaf and telling you to eat this or make you better? Give us a call 08459 25 2000. Get emailing us in as well at chris at thenakedscientist.com. So we want to hear from you now. 08459 25 2000. Sarah. Thanks, Kat. Also on the show, we're going to be looking at some current news stories. We're going to be telling you about a new drug called Modanavanil to help keep you awake. And from Kat, we're going to be hearing how music enhances the effects of ecstasy. <laughs> we'll also be uh, going off to listen to the Mildenhall College of Technology battening down the hatches as Derek takes along some exploding flour for kitchen science. And, um, as usual, you can have a go at our quiz, science fact or science fiction. We'll ask you a question and you have to say whether the answer is true or false. It's that simple. And tonight we've got um, some great prizes. We've got um, two tickets to the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew, or we've got £20 worth of Wiggly Wigglers vouchers um, <laughs> to get some worms for your compost bin. So lots of great plant-related prizes, and to win them, get calling. Uh, ring us on 08459252000. The Naked Scientist podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. Thanks, Mandy. Um, now, there's a new drug that can help keep you awake, which I wasn't sure about this. It's called modafinil. I and could do with that now. <laughs> I'm absolutely shattered. I've had a big weekend moving house. Oh, you poor thing. Tell That's us more. such Tell a us more. stressful thing. 
Um, now, there's a company in America called Kefalon, um, which have developed this drug to help people with narcolepsy and sleep apnea who have awful problems. People with narcolepsy keep falling asleep and often fall asleep at the wheel. And people with sleep apnea snore terribly and keep waking up through the night because their airway blocks and they really don't mm. get a very refreshing night's sleep at all. Well, they so haven't got was... many friends either, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not good for wives when people <laughs> snore. <laughs> Um, now, what you do with this drug, you take it before bed and then about four or five hours later you wake up and feel really ready to get up and go because it's a stimulant and it can actually keep you awake for up to 48 hours. <laughs> My goodness, so it's the sort of thing people taking exams, this sort of stuff, it used to be ProPlus, didn't it? So mm. this is a new ProPlus. Although I tried caffeine tablets once when I was a student to write an essay and I have to say I fell asleep, so it didn't work very well. Oh, they just so make me feel sick. <laughs> I hope modafinil's more effective. Um, Modafinil is what's called a eugeroid, and that's Greek word, which means good arousal. So it reminds me a bit of sildenafil, which is Viagra. <laughs> Combine the two, yeah. you could have something really big on your hands. Okay, well, can you? <laughs> Um, I, I wasn't sure about this, though, because I thought, gosh, it must be exhausting to sort of stay awake for 48 hours. But apparently you really do feel very alert, very awake, and you can get on with whatever you've got to do. So it's, it's good potentially for people in the military, pilots. Doctors. Um, yeah. <laughs> mm, they could go back to the 24-hour on-call days, couldn't they? Yuck. <laughs> is it good for us, though? Because, I mean, the, the natural way of things is the fact that we, we, we work, we eat, we sleep. Uh, and, and we do that right from the moment that we're conceived. So, so, I mean, is it good for us? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, we spend a third of our lives asleep. and sleep Which is, is a shame, isn't it, really? Mm, we believe sleep helps to repair neurons in the brain. It helps to get our brain ready for the next day's activity. And so I, I just wonder if, you know, there, there could be some long-term effects. Mm. They say that it doesn't have any particularly bad side effects other than headaches, but I guess time will tell and we'll have to see what happens. So when you're awake, you've got a headache. Marvellous. Mm. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, I've, I've got another story here about drugs and their effects on the brain, but this is ecstasy, the, um, the clubber's drug. And some scientists in Italy have done an experiment which shows what clubbers for years have actually known, that if you take... Um, ecstasy and then listen to loud music it sort of enhances the effects of ecstasy. Now um, why is this important? So they, they did an experiment where they took rats and they gave some of them ecstasy. So these little eat up rats going, yeah, having it and all these other rats that were just given salt solutions, so they're sitting there going, right, it's okay and they played them music or they didn't play them music or sort of sounds, like electronic sounds the sort of thing that you get in nightclubs and uh, then they monitored their brains and they found out that if they gave the rats ecstasy, then for five days afterwards their brains were still affected by the ecstasy um, if they were listening to music as well. But if they gave the rats ecstasy and didn't play the music, then the effects only lasted for a day. So, you know, although ecstasy is an illegal drug, don't take it, kids. If you do, stay at home. Oh, it's interesting. Music. So you go, so you go clubbing Friday and Saturday night, um, and then and your actually brain, you're your still, still clubbing broken. till Wednesday. Yeah, your brain is still broken until the following week. So, uh, yes, don't do that. Well, as we mentioned uh, earlier, even though Chris isn't about this week, he's still out there digging around for good science stories, and uh, he's on the line now. Chris, uh, are you hearing us loud and clear? Loud and clear here in St. Louis at the gateway to the Midwest, I'm told. Tell us exactly what you're up to. 
<laughs> well, this is the AAAS. It's the American Association for the Advancement of Science, or at least it would be if anyone was here. It was quite ironic that yesterday we were looking for life elsewhere in the universe with Maggie Turnbull from Carnegie Institution in Washington, and uh, she's narrowed down five stars that she thinks might be good contenders as places to look for life. But uh, we haven't yet discovered any life here in St. Louis. Perhaps <laughs> 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 they've all gone to the moon. <laughs> I think they've gone somewhere, but they haven't come here. The, the thing is that this is in the middle of America, and the, the problem that that sets is that there's a big geographical divide between where the people are and where the conference is. And so this conference, which is supposed to be reaching out to the general public and telling people about what the scientists in America are up to, and in fact scientists from all over the world who are here speaking, well, that's a bit of a difficulty if no one can come. So it, it, another challenge is that it's minus 16 outside today. Uh, so yes, it, it's pretty bracing. The Mississippi, which flows through here, is freezing up, and uh, and there's no one here. But other than that, we're having a great time because <laughs> the science is fantastic and second to none. I tell you what, Chris, you're feeling a bit miserable out there. We've it's had a bit an, chilly. We've had an email here, and it says so it's from Lee Thompson, and he says, "Dr. Chris, I've listened to the question and answer podcast. Is there anything you don't know for an egghead? You totally rock." <laughs> Fantastic. I, I've that make some, you feel better? Well, one of the things you were talking about just now was modafinil, of course, the stay awake drug. And one of the reasons that that's also popular is because it has a memory-boosting effect. So if anyone out there wants to rival my memory for things, and I do actually have a photographic memory, then perhaps a dose of modafinil will help you to do that. I've got a photographic memory, but the batteries have run out. <laughs> yeah, well, you need to flash more. Exam, <laughs> that's her excuse, and she's sticking to it. <laughs> so what else have you heard out there, Chris? Well, one of the things which we were talking about, apart from looking for life in St. Louis and looking for life on Mars, was uh, GM crops. And I got talking to a guy called Yoshi Shapiro yesterday from Monsanto, the big uh, GM crop giant. And they've actually made a, a form of potato plant which contains a bacterial toxin. It's called BT toxin. And he had a wonderful demonstration where he had two potato plants. One was a genetically modified potato plant, and the other one was a normal plant. And they'd infested them with something called a Colorado beetle. And these beetles are voracious, hungry eaters and they would demolish potato crops in no time. And he actually talked me through exactly how this demonstration works. We have two potato plants here. One is a traditional or conventional potato plant. Uh, the other is genetically enhanced potato. They're both infested with uh, small Colorado potato beetle larvae, and the larvae are feeding on the uh, two types of potato plants. On the traditional potato plants, the larvae survive, and we can start to see it significant amounts of damage happening where the uh, insects are feeding they're eating holes through the leaves on the genetically enhanced potato plant which is enhanced with a bacillus thuringiensis protein in other words a toxin that's going to kill the, the beetle that's right it's it's a toxin that's very specific for the order coleoptera which are beetles to which the colorado potato beetles belong and so that particular plant that produces the protein in the cells will kill the, uh, the insects that feed on it. The good thing about the, this particular protein is that it has a very narrow range of activity. And so other insects and all other organisms, aside from beetles, would not be affected. Not toxic to humans? Not at all toxic to humans, that's right. It's called BT for Bacillus thuringiensis. That is the bacterium that in nature produces this class of uh, toxins. The BT toxins have been used for probably 60 years or more as foliar applied insecticides and have a history of, of uh, safe usage. And how did you actually get the plants to make the toxin? How do you do that? Well, it's through molecular biology techniques. We can insert genes and uh, the sort of the genetic elements that control the expression of genes into the DNA of the plant cells 
and then the plant itself will begin to produce the protein that the gene encodes. Can you just talk us through the nuts and bolts of how you actually make a GM crop? There are a couple of ways that are commonly used for inserting these particular constructs into plant cells. One is called agrobacterium transformation, and that involves the uh, use of a bacterium that will insert its own DNA naturally into plant cells of the plants that it infects. Those bacteria have been disarmed so that they're not inserting their own DNA, but rather they're insert inserting the DNA of interest. So that's the construct with which we want to modify the plant cell. So that's one way. The other way is to do it through what's called the biolistic method, which is a means of uh, bombarding DNA with small pellets that are coated with the genes of interest and thereby inserting the DNA sequence of the construct into the DNA of the plant. What about spread of the gene to other plants in nature? Is that a risk? Well, with something like potato, it's not a risk because potato is typically not grown to flower. Potato is propagated asexually or by you know pieces of potato. And so the flow of pollen is not a risk. With other crops, there may be some concerns, and so that is something that needs to be studied and remediated in one way or another. But in the context of this potato pest, how much could this save someone in the third world growing potatoes if they were succumbing to pests like this? Well, these Colorado potato beetle are particularly voracious feeders. And uh, as you can see, the damage that's been done to this plant has happened in a relatively short span of time just this afternoon. If we were to come back here tomorrow, these insects will have continued to feed. And before the conference is over, that plant will no longer have any leaves, it won't have any chance of making a potato crop. In many cases, let's say in the case of subsistence farmers who would not maybe have the means or the wherewithal to apply pesticides, it may make the difference between having a potato crop and not having a potato crop at all. It was Monsanto's Yoshi Shapiro cooking up a much less palatable potato using genetically modified crop technology. Well, Chris, before you go, we've got a caller on the line for you. This is David from Royston. Uh, David, you're through to Dr. Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello. Um, GM crops, soybeans, um, grains of rice, wheat, how do they actually um, come about? What do they do to them? Well... well as Yossi was, was just sort of outlining there, one of the ways in which you do this is to resort to biotechnology. In other words, you can use a techniques which are standard laboratory techniques to do this. Now, one of the things that you can do is to use a bacterium, and it's called Agrobacterium tumefaciens. It's a soil-living bacterium, but it's naturally evolved away to genetically modify plants. Now, the way it does that is it has a, a, an element called a transposon, and these transposons are little pieces of DNA which can insert themselves into the genetic material of a plant. So what you do is to insert into that transposon the genes that you want to transfer into a plant. You then disarm the bacterium so that it's unable to do what it normally does, and you use that technique to move the gene you want into the plant's DNA, moving in with it the genes that you want to transfer to the plant. The reason the bacterium normally does this is because it wants to encourage an area of growth on the root of the plant, or the stem of the plant, a gall in other words, which is an ideal home for that bacterium. And so you're using what nature's already provided and subverting it into producing another kind of plant for you with some additional techniques and characteristics. How about that, David? Yeah, does this make it a, 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 um, a bigger crop as such? or just a, a stronger crop? 
It depends what you move in, David. You can put genes for a whole range of different things into that. One of the things you can put in is a gene which gives you resistance to a pesticide, for example, so that you can spray your field with the, that particular pesticide, uh, sorry, or a, a, foli a fungicide or something. The plant is not sensitive to it, but any other plants in the field are. So, for instance, cereal crops can be uh, made to be resistant to a herbicide, something that kills grasses, but not that particular plant. Uh, or you can make the plant naturally resistant to certain kinds of insect pests, so that when the insects eat the plant, rather like those potato plants, the insects die. Yeah. And uh, am I right in saying that majority of GM crops at the moment are, are into animal feeds more so than human feeds? Or is it, I think uh, I've done a little bit of research in terms of golden rice from America. There's a lot of um, things on the supermarket shelves here in America, and people here in America have been eating yeah. uh, genetically modified plants for a very, very long time, and in fact they've been in the UK for a very, very long time. The amount of regulation required to prove that they're safe is very intensive. Yeah. Okay, David? Yep, thank you. Now, David, we'd like you to hang on because we'd love you to play fact or fiction. Thank you. Lovely. So uh, we shall uh, now move on to, uh, well, the, the, the quiz that's got everybody going around the counties. Exactly. And 08459 If you've got any questions uh, to put to Dr. Chris, because Dr. Chris uh, is listening uh, throughout the programme uh, today. So if you want to baffle him with a bit of your science, uh, then give us a call. 08459 Cat. So here we have the quiz for you, David. Thank you. All right. Um, earth, air, fire and salt were the four elements proposed by the ancient Greeks. Is that fact or fiction? Fact. Sorry, David, that's actually fiction. It's actually earth, air, fire and water, not salt. Right. I keep thinking that's earth, wind and fire. Um, maybe Mandy can tell us I'm more about I'm not singing, that. I'm not singing. <laughs> A second question. Venus and Mercury are planets with no moons. Is that fact or fiction? Fact. Well done. Yeah, all the other planets have at least one moon. All right, you've got uh, one out of two, so you will find out if you're the winner. Anyone else at home, if you think you can do better than David in Royston, get calling in 08459 252000. And if you have any questions for our guests, for Monique and Tai Ping, who are here to talk all about sort of nature's medicine chest and the treasures within it. Have you used herbal remedies? Did they work? Did they not work? Um, do you have plants in your garden that you use? Maybe your granny was really into herbal medicine. Get phoning in 08459-252000. The Naked Scientists, supported by the Wellcome Trust. Well, now we're off for some kitchen science, and this week Derek is at the Mildenhall College of Technology in Suffolk. He's joined by Cambridge University physicist Helen Chersky and student helper J.I., and they're going to be finding out about the explosive power of flour. Hi Derek. Hi there and welcome to Mildenhall College of Technology in Suffolk and we've come to do some fantastic experiments today. Um, with me is actually a new recruit to uh, The Naked Scientist who's uh, going to be setting up a couple of experiments for us on this kitchen science feature. Um, could you just introduce yourself and tell us where you work? Hi, my name's Helen Chersky and I'm a PhD student at the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge. Okay then, and could you just quickly tell us um, what kind of things we're going to be doing today? We're going to be blowing things up, but not any fancy explosives. We're just going to be blowing up plain, ordinary flour like you'd find in your kitchen. But don't try this at home because I don't want to get into trouble with your parents. OK, yes, yeah, so that's a very good point from Helen there. Please do not try this at home, but do please listen to what's going to happen because we are going to be making some stuff happen and also explaining it. Helen's going to be explaining what's going on. Also with us is a student from uh, Mildenhall College of Technology who's come very kindly to actually do this experiment really for us. Could you please introduce yourself and uh, tell us what year you're in as well? 
I'm Jaifu, and I'm in Year 11. Excellent. Nice to have you with us. And so, are you into science? What science are you doing? Chemistry is my main one, actually, yeah. Okay, well, which branch of science do you think this mainly focuses on? Well, I'm a physicist, so I think it's mostly physics, but it's got a fair bit of chemistry in there as well. Okay, good stuff. So, Helen, then, what have we got set up in front of us? So, what I have here is a very large transparent box. Um, It's about um, a foot long on each side. It's a cube, and it's it's see-through, so we can see through the walls. Um, And inside it, we've got two candles that are burning, and also we've got a funnel poking up through the bottom of the box, and the funnel is full of flour. And Jai there is going to blow down the tube, and so flour will get puffed up into the box, and we're going to have a look at what happens. Okay, so what we've actually got then is this funnel is kind of pointing down out of the box, and so there's a load of flour kind of put into it, and there's a tube stretching all the way up to Jai, who's holding it in his hand. And so when Jai blows down this tube, the flour which is resting in the funnel is going to get puffed up, as Helen said, into the air, which is kind of in that big transparent box. And we've got two candles burning there as well. So all that remains to be done is for Jai to actually blow the air. Are you ready, Jai? <laughs> yep. Good stuff, and we have been doing some practising as well, so we're ready to get this. Right, so here we go. Let's, let's blow that flower into the box. Wicked! Yeah. Well done. Okay, so well done, Jai. I mean, describe to me, what happened in there? Well, put simply, it exploded. The reason being, I think, is that, of course, flower contains a lot of chemical potential energy, and, of course, that's being burnt into heat energy when, by the flame, of course. Thank you. Yeah, that's great. So basically, yeah, we, we had two candles in there and the, the flower was just kind of being puffed up, suspending itself in the air. And then suddenly a whole whoosh, which is what you heard, of flame just kind of swept across and actually pushed some air out of the box, which is kind of what we heard. So Helen's here, of course, to explain it. So Helen, what was happening there? Well, what was happening is that the flour is acting as a fuel. Um, now, flour won't burn if you have a pile of it and just put a match on top of it. It goes a bit black and smells horrid, but it won't burn. Because what you need in order to burn is both a fuel, which is the flour, and oxygen. And there's oxygen in the air. So if you can mix together the fuel and the oxygen so they're right next to each other, then you've got a good chance of getting some burning going. So that's what we did. Puffing the flour up into the air meant it mixed the flour with the air. And then that drifted down. And when it touched the flame, it got hot enough and it started to burn. And because it's inside a box, if a little bit of it burns, it generates some gas, the pressure builds up, so when the next bit burns, it burns even faster, and then the pressure builds up more and it burns up faster. So if you do it inside a box, you can actually get a proper explosion. So we really saw an explosion, and also we kind of had some hissing sounds as the air kind of rushed out, and actually all of us, didn't we, we kind of felt some hot air, do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely did. Yeah. yeah, exactly. There was kind of like a rush of hot air as it all came out. So I mean, this was because, what, it's going from a fuel into a gas? That's right. Well, the fuel is a solid, but when things burn, most, when most things burn, they generate gases, and the gas takes up um, much more space than the solid. So if you generate a gas, it wants to spread out and expand and push against something else. So there are some little, little gaps in the box, and so when the pressure of the gas inside built up, all that air wanted to go somewhere else because there's too much to be inside the box. So it whooshed out, and everyone took a step backwards. It was very funny. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. No, I, I was certainly included in that. So excellent. Well, thank you for your efforts, Jai. Of course, there's one more question, which is how does this kind of relate to some some more practical things like engines and so on. So so what about that? Well, for example, uh, whenever anything burns, you need a fuel-air mixture. And you get that as well in the internal combustion engine. You squirt fuel into the cylinders in in your car, um, and it mixes with the air there, and you get exactly the same kind of explosion. And that's what drives um, the piston, which drives your car. Okay, and so when you don't have that kind of suspension, it just doesn't really work so well. What you need is a mixture. Um, You always need the oxygen and the fuel to be right next to each other because you can't have a reaction with two things that are too far apart. So it's all about mixing the right things together.
Well, thank you very much, Helen. So we have been blowing up flour here. Um, once again, we would advise you not to do this at home, but uh, I hope you've heard in very great detail exactly how it looked and, and what it was like here. So thank you very much for that, Helen and Jai. And that's all from uh, Mildenhall College of Technology, so please do join us next time for some more kitchen science somewhere in the east of England. Uh, until then, goodbye. Thanks for that, Derek, and well done to Jai for avoiding blowing up the school. I wonder if they're all dusty and covered in flour now. <laughs> don't do it at home, kids. Please don't blow stuff up at home. Now, next week on Kitchen Science, Derek and Dave are going to be in Hertfordshire looking at the science behind what makes gravy thick. We Can't always used wait. to fight for the lumps when I was at school. Fantastic. <laughs> Weirdo. <laughs> well, we're taking your calls, uh, 08459252000. Remember, our guests in the studio, uh, Monique Simmons and uh, Taiping Fan. Uh, we are talking about plants that help to fight diseases and uh, traditional Chinese medicines. If you've got any idea of any sort of uh, questions to do with that, and we are particularly interested in your family's remedies, uh, particularly sort of pre-1945, if Granny had a remedy, remedy that always used to work uh, and it was something to do with plants you know these poultices and all these disgusting things that they used to put together to solve the toothache and all that sort of thing we would like to hear from you 08459 25 2000 give us a call now here on the naked scientists cat yep and also now just before we go to mummy you can type in we have this week's podcast pick petro's been scanning the airwaves to find a new podcast for us we have one this week from tim Kammer, who's at skepticmoment.com and he's going to tell us all about the healing power of crystals crystals formed by the solidification of chemicals regularly repeating internal arrangements of atoms and molecules bounded by external plane faces and this is why crystals have stimulated our imaginations many new agers and modern occultists say crystals channel good energy and ward off bad energy they say crystals carry vibrations that resonate with healing frequencies and can be used to heal us physically and emotionally some believe crystals can also help with self-expression creativity meditation and the immune system these beliefs are based on nothing more than testimonials, the placebo effect, and selective and wishful thinking. But I must say crystals do look nice and definitely have some properties useful in electronics and optics. That was Tim Kammer. And if you want to hear any more about his podcast where he looks at science fact and science fiction, visit his website, which is www.skepticmoment.com. And also, if you have a podcast of your own, you can email it into us as an MP3. We want about a minute, a minute and a half. If you have science stories to tell, maybe you know a tame scientist who will tell us about what they're doing, email it into chris at nakedscientist.com and you could be picked by Petro and put on the air. So we've just been hearing about crystal healing and debunking that but what about the healing powers of plants monique hello hello good evening so you're actually looking at plants that really do heal and trying to suss out why can you tell us a bit more about what you do i'm, I'm working at the royal botanic gardens Q, and we've got a, um, a team of people who are at the moment concentrating actually on british plants because we've actually neglected our own back garden we've been working on everybody else's the last few years and we're going back and looking at some of those traditional uses where we can't really explain how they work. So is there any substance behind it? So the group uh, of scientists at Kew are involved in helping to isolate the different compounds in these plants and then studying to see if they can explain how they work. So we're using different um, techniques to fractionate the um, compounds. You start off basically with like a, a tea, an infusion from the plant. And one of the keys to our work is really concentrating on how 
the plants were traditionally used. And when in the year that they were collected, because often we've made mistakes and somebody's come to us and said, well, this plant was used for X, Y and Z, and we've just gone out possibly into the gardens at Kew, collected it and paid no attention to when it was um, traditionally used. So well, can you give us an example of that? Well, for example, some of the work that we've done on figworts, which is used in the early part of the year, um, it, it doesn't contain the same compounds later on. So it's really important to get it in the, the springtime. It's a similar type of thing for goosegrass, which is used for wound healing. So goosegrass, the stuff with all the little burrs that stick yes, on the dog. The, the, the cleavers, that's, <laughs> that's right. Now, that has been traditionally used to treat leg ulcers. Now, over the last few years that we've been studying it, we've identified some compounds that have antibacterial activity, so that kind of protects the wound as it's healing. It also has a little bit of antioxidant and anti-inflammatory, but it also stimulates fibroblasts. Now, these are the cells that need to multiply to help heal a wound. So it suggests there's lots of good stuff in there. Do you think if you just purify one chemical out to turn into a drug, you risk losing all the other good stuff that's in there yes i think from our work when we've tested the kind of the crude infusion and then isolated we, we often find that the activity is lost and how are you finding your ideas yeah you know, are you asking your granny <laughs> where, where well, do you get your ideas well it comes from a range of different sources partly it is a kind of granny's remedies it's remembered remedies uh, plants that were used before 1945, before the health service came in. It's a real source of information. So it's partly to find out our own traditional use and to conserve that use. Um, so that's a source of information. And then we go back to some of the older herbals. So it's a combination of information. Now, we don't want to investigate things that have already been well studied. We're looking for new, th new leads, basically. So something like peppermint, which has been quite well studied you you wouldn't necessarily not be really unless it was in. a new use um so far uh, you know there's lots of plants that are coming up again and again like uh, dock and dandelion and elder now okay elder used frequently but actually we don't fully know how it's used another example is crab apple now crab apple was used to treat uh, forms of cancer like stomach cancer and colon cancer why we don't really know I, do you think, do they have antibacterial properties? Because a lot of stomach cancer is caused by um, a bacteria that yeah. lives in the stomach under acidic conditions. Yes, this could be um, what's happening. And having fundamental knowledge about some of the, the role of the compounds in the ecology of a plant, because plants produce these compounds not as medicines for us, but actually protect themselves from being attacked by viruses, fungi, and also things like insects, we actually can make some advances. So it's, if it's a natural antibacterial, then that's where we'll often start. So I'd, sometimes when I used to live at home, I'd see my dog going out in the garden and eating stuff and, uh, and then being copiously sick. Is it true that animals will seek out plants that can help make them better? Yes, there's quite a lot of evidence that they do, especially if they've got infestations of fleas and things, that they will um, rub themselves in things like lavender um, to, to get rid of um, some of the insects. And then if you look at the behaviour of um, apes, where they will um, take some of the fruits um, to kind of purge themselves of, say, things like nematodes and in, in intestine infections. So there's quite a lot of evidence that, that animals are selecting 
Is that something that you're looking at um, to learn from animals and what they do so that you can get clues to what to look at next? We, we do take into account that. But there's so much that we could do here that we have to kind of put some blinkers on, otherwise we'd just be overpowered. We'd love to really kind of tinker with everything, but we can't because otherwise we'd never deliver something. There's such a rich source of information out there. It just justifies so much further research. Monique, once this information is gathered, um, are you going to try and reproduce this, or, or obviously we'll be passing the information on, so that it can be reproduced chemically, so that we can, we can you know, just go to the doctors and they will be prescribing pills that will have these properties in them? Yes, I mean, the main um, emphasis of our project is to understand what is going on. Um, at some time, I'm sure we will actually isolate some of the really active ingredients, and that's where the compounds from the plant will most likely act as models and then will be synthesized. Um, there is a stage where we might be able to help um, identify the proportion of compounds that should be there and that's when you could have something produced as a kind of medicinal drug. But I think there's one thing that you've really got to be careful on these is when a plant works and you take it, you've got to be so careful that you're not mixing it with some of the traditional medicines. Because of an active plant, then in combination with another form of drug, you get adverse responses. And when you get many of those, unfortunately, the authorities will often act to ban the plant. Mm. So it's got to be really careful. It's St John's wort is a problem, isn't it? That's St, John's, one of the common... uh, St John's wort, yes. And you get things interfering with things like warfarin. A lot of people are taking, taking to... Um, you know, decrease the um, uh, blood flow, etc. And when you get these interactions, and it's also affecting what's happening in your in your liver. Can you? It's a, oh, sorry. I was just going to say it's actually a problem with the pill as well because people often take St John's Wort if they're feeling a bit depressed, and then it interferes with their contraceptive pill. And and it doesn't work. Unwanted pregnancies, which is not ideal. <laughs> I mean, Monique, can you just tell us really briefly about your Remembered Remedies project? How can our listeners get involved in well, that? It would be great if they they could look back in their records or talk to um, some of the elder members of the family, and get in contact with us at, at Q. Um, to provide that information of which plants were being used for themselves, but also maybe for their animals. Now, this is a collaborative project with herbalists and ethnobotanists that are helping to collect the remedies throughout uh, Britain. And uh, we really would appreciate it, because often you think, OK, everybody knows that, but they don't. And one of the keys is, did they use the plants in combination with other plants, or was it by themselves? And please provide information about where the plants were used because the soil has an effect on the chemistry of the plant. So a plant picked from, say, Norfolk or Cambridge might have a very different composition of chemicals than, some, say, from Scotland or from Cornwall. So if you've got anything at home, you know, any herbs lurking, you can email it in to us at chris at thenakedscientist.com. Um, we'll also have Monique's details on our website, which is www.nakedscientist.com. And uh, you can also phone in the show on 08459 25 2000. Tell us about it. What did your granny used to get up to? Do you still use herbal remedies at home? Um, we'd love to hear from you. But uh Oh eight four five nine twenty five two thousand, and uh, don't forget that uh, we're also uh, going to be moving into the realms of Chinese medicine as well in a moment. And I think uh, you know an awful lot of people you hear about how successful their acupuncture has been and all these sorts of things. And uh, we're delighted to have an expert in the studio this evening. Yeah, Taiping. Hello, welcome to the show. Good evening. Thank you. Hi. So you're working on traditional Chinese medicine. How long has Chinese medicine been around? 
Uh, in recorded history, it's been around for 2,000 years, but ECU has been probably more than that, 3,000 or four. So what, what are you doing? You're taking Chinese remedies and trying to work out how they work. Precisely. Um, I think as a scientist trained in England, I, I got fascinated by the reports that, uh, like Dr. Uh, Luo Dinghui and her, she really transformed the treatment for eczema in the early 90s. So working together with her, I learned a great deal, and we are now applying modern technology and little techniques and the study of genes, the proteins, and the sugars. We're trying to apply all these to try to find out how plant medicine can be um, produced in the future by a process of matrix, as you were. So you've been doing some work on ginseng. Um, what have you found out about ginseng? Uh, it, it is a very interesting project, actually. We uh, set aside some, uh, a project on ginseng because it is the most revered uh, plant in Chinese medicine. And it, and it actually has been reported to either promote wound healing, increase memory, and also using cancer. So we didn't know what's going on there. So I had a hypothesis that they may, ginseng plant might contain two different classes of chemicals. One class would stimulate, the other class would inhibit formation of blood vessels. So in cancer, you have blood vessels growing, which is bad. That's right. Um, so the form, you, you want to find something that stops the blood vessels growing to treat cancer. That's right. And it's very interesting that when we compare different types of ginsengs, and we came, uh, came up with uh, this answer that in American ginseng, actually, uh, the, this kind of ginseng contains larger amount of the anti, uh, the drug which the compound which we inhibit, the process called angiogenesis, so formation of blood, blood vessel. vessel growth. Yes, and there's more of that in American ginseng than in a Korean ginseng. So the opposite is true that uh, Korean ginseng is good for chronic wounds. So you should be very careful in what kind of ginseng you use. So you don't want to encourage blood vessels to grow in cancer. So if you have cancer, it's the American form you need to be taking. Absolutely. And if you've got a wound, the Korean form. Yes, uh, simply put. How do you know what's the difference? If you go into a health food shop, how do you know which one to get? If you you actually go to a, a, a good herbalist shop, and that is bring home the point of legislation the government is trying to bring because then we can regulate uh, all these uh, herbalist shops uh, really they know what they are doing there there are no cowboys out there and I think it's most important that we work with the government to provide the uh, assurance that these herbs are what they are. It's like the point Monique was making as well you know if you have much more awareness and regulation then you can make sure people's drugs aren't interfering with the herbal remedy and So So what else are you working on in the moment in your lab? Um, We're also working on two other projects. One is endometriosis. What's that? Endometriosis is actually a situation where every month during the menstruation, uh, the endometrium or the woman actually will be sloughed off. Unfortunately, sometimes these uh, bits would actually not be uh, passed out. You actually go into the uh, inside the body, uh, peritoneal cavity of the patient, and actually when these bits actually land on different parts of the anatomy, like the colon or the ovary, they cause problems like bleeding, pains, and so on. And so that we now know it's a situation where angiogenesis is playing an important part. Uh, too much angiogenesis. So what we want to know is whether 
actually, we have shown that three years ago using animal model, that if you block angiogenesis, you can block endometriosis. And now, with collaboration with China, we are looking at six different plants known for their effects in endometriosis, and we are looking at them. And some of them actually is quite uh, quite popular. If you like, Angelica sinensis is one of them. Another one is. Uh, um, the other one is safflower, which is actually present in the, the British uh, garden, if you like. So do, do these plants that are used often to treat the same illness, do they have chemicals in common? Is it the same kind of chemicals cropping up in all these plants? Sometimes you do see similar chemicals present in different plants. Uh, like in Angelica sinensis, uh, you actually have three different chemicals which are present in other plants. So a good herbalist and chemist and biochemist should actually choose a plant which they want to isolate these chemicals from. And hopefully, like Monique was saying, that one could actually use different techniques to uh, synthesize better compounds which one can eventually prescribe to patients. I think it's fascinating that now, you know, we've progressed so much with science and medicine. We turned it on its head. And we can look back at thousands of years of of medicine and and try and work out how it actually works. We've got a question from Connie in Godmanchester. And she says, how does taking herbal remedies such as St John's wort actually affect giving blood? You know, will it affect your blood or just in the same way as a a normal medicine? Should you tell the blood donor centre if you're taking something? What do you reckon, Monique? I think you should, yes, very much so. I think you should uh, definitely um, tell anybody you're donating blood to. Also, I think it's important that you tell your doctor that you're taking something herbal because so frequently that doesn't happen. So the herbalist doesn't know what drugs you're taking and they... And the doctor doesn't know what the herbalist is giving you. That's an interesting point because, I mean, a lot of people will go to their doctor and their doctor will say, well, actually, there, there really isn't anything that I can do about this. Um, have you tried any, any other remedies? And then that person will then go and probably go to a coffee morning with a friend and the friend will say, oh, well, I took so-and-so. That was marvellous. It, it's actually, this is the medicine that's travelling by word of mouth, which makes it dangerous in a way. It, it, Yes, I would hate to say kind of dangerous because it's so so easy to put this into kind of a negative box. I mean, remember, it was our medicine, you know, until really the, the 1940s. Um, so we relied on, on plants and many parts of the world still totally rely on plants. It's this kind of combination when things go wrong. Uh, and the other thing is when, when some of the plants are being grown now, that we are selecting plants that have had higher concentrations of some of the active ingredients. So plants that are being used now often have higher levels of some of the actives. So you know, we, we need to really know what we're dealing with and to know more about the concentrations uh, of the active ingredients in some of these herbals that are being sold. But a really professional herbalist will take a lot of this into account. So, Sarah, you're a GP. Do you find more and more people saying, oh, I've tried this other complementary medicine or this herbal medicine? You do have to push people because it is something they don't often admit to unless you say, are you buying anything over the counter or are you taking any herbal remedies? And then they'll say, oh, yes, actually, I am <laughs> you know, doing this multivitamin. Um, and it's something you do take into account. And it's something I find more and more people coming in to ask me you know, what I think about various things. And often they've tried what conventional medicine can offer and they're keen to try something else if they found conventional medicine has failed for them. Um, our experts are typing and Monique, would you like to see more doctors, Western doctors, being having courses maybe in, in herbal medicine? 
Of course, we very much welcome that uh, opportunity. Actually, in this country, there's only one university which is uh, offering such course, and uh, that is in Middlesex University. And here at Cambridge, we have students who are interested in this kind of complementary medicine. But of course, they would have to wait until they qualified before they have a chance to to actually venture into that direction. Because it used to be traditional that they would be taught both. I mean, it's only mm-hmm. in the last uh, 10 years that the, the, the teaching of the more uh, traditional herbal has decreased. And it, we're talking with colleagues, um, it's, you know, there's, there's an increased uh, interest in having modules. I mean, just the other day in my practice, we had a homeopathist come to talk to us about what they can offer. Um, And when I worked down in London, we had a Chinese um, and conventional medicine doctor working with us who practiced both. And it was very useful. I mean, maybe um, like Taiping, if if you get sick, do you go for Chinese medicine or Western medicine? Well, that very much depends on the situation. If I had a headache, of course, I just take take a paracetamol. But if I actually (laughs) have a more... Um, if I'm in, in fear of uh, a more chronic disease, of course, I would actually go for uh, ring up Dr. Uh, Ding Hui and see what she could do for me. Because I personally feel that the Chinese medicine actually is multi-targeting. By, by that we mean is something called fufang. That means you're comp- blending different herbs. Uh, one of her may be anti-inflammatory, one her may be antibacterial, one would be providing wound healing and so on and so forth. So I do believe there's uh, a lot to be learned from that. And, and could I just uh, point out that the genome project has been so successful, we now know there are 30,000 genes here, but actually there are only 1, 000, about, 1, 000, uh, about 100 genes are targets for drugs. What ha- how about the other 29,000 genes? <laughs> so I think that actually opened the, uh, the, if you like, opened the door for drug discovery that uh, Monique and I may be able to, to take um, part. Keep you in jobs for a few more years then. <laughs> You're listening to The Naked Scientist, 08459 25 2000, if you would like to uh, phone in and join in our conversation this evening. And uh, to the lines we go because uh, George is waiting uh, to have a chat with Sarah about that drug, uh, Sarah, that you were talking about a little bit earlier that keeps us awake. George, are you there? That sounds like young Mandy. Uh, you're through to Dr. <laughs> Sarah. She's the one with the answers. Hi, George. Hello. Uh, hi. Uh, you were talking earlier about a drug that keeps one awake. Yeah, modafinil. Yes, well, the uh, the military, amphetamines have been around for years, and the military were issued with them in the First World War, and I've been told reliably that the um, in the likes of Iraq, etc., they're still issued now to keep one awake. So what's the difference between modafinil, as you say, something like that, than amphetamine sulfate. Yeah, well, modafinil doesn't seem to have um, the horrible side effects that amphetamines have. So amphetamines can sometimes leave you feeling very depressed after you've taken them um, and not not very well, really. Um, But modafinil, really, apart from the side effect of headaches in a few people, is, is pretty good. They don't fully understand how it works but they think that it um, stops nerve cells from reabsorbing a um, neurotransmitter in the brain called dopamine and dopamine's an excitatory neurotransmitter and so that's how they think it keeps you awake and how it works does that answer your question well is it better than amphetamine obviously oh, i think better than amphetamines from the point of view it has fewer nasty side effects uh, yeah yeah um, so do you fancy paying uh, fact or fiction george Yes, I'll play it. Oh, go on, it'll be fine. It won't hurt a bit. 
Here we go. Um, first question. Nylon got its name from the person who invented it. Fact or fiction? Uh, fiction. Well done. That's absolutely right. Nylon got its name because it was developed in New York and London at the same time. So the NY at the beginning is for New York and the LON at the end from London. Yeah. Um, a photon is a soil particle. Is that fact or fiction? Fiction. Well done. Uh, a photon's actually a particle of light. Yep. George, you're in the lead, it would appear. Yep, you're heading on for those uh, tickets to go and see Kew Gardens. Uh, so, all those wiggly wigglers. All wiggly wigglers. <laughs> so, so try and keep awake and we may phone you back. I'm just taking a pill. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, George. Drug taking live on The Naked Scientist. 08459 25 2000. Cat. Yes, and now we have Jack Cusick, Professor Jack Cusick from Cancer Research UK, who's talking to us live from Rome, we hope. Hi, Jack. Hello, hello. Hello, we got you. We had a power cut here. It was very nerve-wracking. Yeah, right. I'm stuck in the airport, so hopefully we can do all right. <laughs> Excellent. How's Rome? Uh, it's warm and windy, actually. Not as bad as uh, London at the moment. Excellent. Um, we've been talking about... Um, drugs how we discover new drugs but you're running a clinical trial aren't you to test whether a drug can prevent cancer can you tell us a bit more about that yeah i mean this is uh, an idea of uh, a new use for a relatively old drug although it's not that old uh, the aromatase inhibitors are becoming established as the treatment of choice really for breast cancer now particularly in postmenopausal women and we noticed in looking at those trials that not only did they stop the old tumors from coming back, but they also were blocking new tumors in the opposite breast, potentially up to 75% of them. So what, what are these aromatase inhibitors? What sort of drugs are they? Basically, they're drugs that prevent the creation of estrogen in postmenopausal women. Once the ovaries stop making estrogen, estrogen is made in the peripheral tissues by converting androgens by an enzyme called aromatase. Uh, to estrogen, and this blocks that pathway. And estrogen's bad for breast cancer? Uh, yeah, estrogens stimulate the breast, and they certainly stimulate breast cancer. So by getting rid of estrogen, we really stop most of the stimulus to the breast. has a very big effect on reducing recurrence, and we think also on preventing new cancers. So this trial you're running, it's, it's called IBIS-2. So um, how many people are you hoping to recruit for the trial? What sort of women are you looking for? Well, IBIS-2 has got two components to it. The most relevant, I think, is uh, the component for women at high risk of breast cancer. And we're looking for 6,000 women who are at increased risk of breast cancer who are postmenopausal. And the increased risk is mostly related to having a family history, a mother or a sister that's had breast cancer or two breast cancers in the family. And so will these women be given the aromatase inhibitor drug? So the women all get uh, very careful follow-up, and it's, uh, it's a randomized trial. The only way we can make progress is to, to see if this works is that all women will get a tablet, half of which will be the active aromatase inhibitor and half will be uh, a, a placebo dummy compound. Okay, and then we follow the women for how long? So treatment is for five years, and, uh, and then we'll follow them up for at least another five years. So uh, it'll be a 10-year trial before we get a complete answer. And if there's women listening to the show now who are, is it postmenopausal women you're after? Postmenopausal women, mostly with a family history or a benign breast lump that's been taken out that has, that's a high-risk kind of lump, which is essentially one that's got atypia in it. So it's something dodgy in it. 
yes. How, how can they get involved? How can they contact IBIS? The easiest way to contact us is really to go to our website, which is IBIS, I-B-I-S dash trials, T-R-I-A-L-S dot org. Uh, and all the information to join the trial is there. Um, if you don't have that, you could actually call the IBIS telephone number. Do you know that? 0207 0-1-4-0-2-3-5. Okay, we'll have all those details up on the Naked Scientist website as well. Well, enjoy your trip in Rome, Jack, and thanks very much for talking to the Naked Scientists. Certainly, thank you. Cheers. Laying the facts bare, the Naked Scientists. Anna Lacey from The Naked Scientist went to speak to Peter Austin from the School of Oriental and African Studies about how thousands of rare languages may become extinct as languages like English and Mandarin start to take over. Human beings have been um, around and speaking languages for 100,000 years or so. And even if you have two communities, say, who speak the same language, because all languages are constantly changing and their new words are coming in, old expressions going out, different fashions of pronunciation that over a period of time, those languages will drift apart until you get to a point where they can't understand each other. And then you've got two separate languages. I mean, this to me sounds very much like the evolution of species, say, on an island. Is this loss of some of the minor languages not survival of the fittest? Okay, there's no genetic relationship between who we are and the language that we speak. Any child can learn to speak any language. There's no requirement that I have to be... And, um, a kangaroo and not be an elephant. So the, there isn't a parallel to the species argument from biology because language is a cultural aspect and we can have multiple languages coexisting in the same domain, in the same space. It's not that languages are competing with one another, it's rather that politics and economics and social and cultural power of one group is forcing other smaller groups to abandon their ways of speaking. But are there not some benefits to having one language or fewer languages? In the modern world, particularly in the last 50 or 60 years, there's been this belief that monolingualism is, you know, the way of the future. Well, that's simply false, and there are a number of reasons why. One is that even if people speak the same language, it doesn't mean they understand each other. It doesn't mean they're able to communicate. It doesn't stop conflict and misunderstanding. Look at Northern Ireland, the conflict. We had the troubles there. Um, the second thing is that you and I speak English, but I still have tremendous trouble understanding lots of people here in the UK. My bank um, has a call centre, which is located in Glasgow, and I have a terrible time understanding these guys. We're supposed to speak English, but in fact it's incomprehensible what these people are producing from my perspective. So there are two, two issues. One is, yes, languages of wider communication are valuable, but it doesn't follow that you have to give up your own language in order to learn that bigger language of wider communication. So it really is true that diversity is the spice of life as far as languages are concerned. Yes, and it has huge value too. It has huge economic value, it has huge political value, it has cultural value for people to be able to maintain their own cultures and languages while participating in the wider world. Monolingualism is a curse of, uh, of the modern world and um, that's where the danger really lies, that people can believe that by giving up languages they will be advantaged. They won't be. 
That was Anna Lacey speaking to Peter Austin about why languages are so important and why we should be speaking lots of them. That's uh, very important. We have something in here from Rosemary, who says that she regularly uses aloe vera. She's been using it for seven years and has told loads of people about the benefits of it. Um, Cleopatra apparently used aloe vera in her beauty regime. Um, and it's been used for wounds and all sorts of things. So, Monique, aloe vera, what's in that? Well, yes, I mean, it goes back in, uh, in use in, in Britain to Culpeper's time. It really can trace its use. It's re- it came into Britain um, said many, many years ago. Um, it's got um, some compounds in called polysaccharides that form a bit of a skin on the, on the surface, so it helps with the wound healing process occur naturally. It's also thought to stimulate the immune system if it's sometimes ingested, but you've really got to be careful that you use the inside of the leaf of a, an aloe plant. So if you've actually got one inside, just make sure you use the gel, the inner um, substance in the, inside that leaf, not to get some of the compounds from the outer leaf onto the wound because that can cause a stinging sensation um, and cause a bit, a bit of blisters. But aloe vera is used throughout the world for treating wounds. That's a good one. Uh, Monique, uh, we've had uh, a question uh, from Hazel. She's just called in, just wanted to tell you that her uncle used groundsel, the plant groundsel, for boils. He had one once, used the plant, and never had one again. It's interesting he didn't have one again. I mean, I can understand how it could have some antibacterial activity, partly anti-inflammatory, that would help heal a wound. But why it had a long-term effect, that's... um, I don't fully understand that. When people use things like plants for, for wounds, are we talking about poultices, sort of strapping things on you? Well, yes, but this is, this is a fascination between what we do in parts of Europe and what happens in China. Within Europe, we often put a poultice on, um, and it, sometimes it's the leaves that are applied to the skin or it's an extract that's put around a bandage. Whereas if you go to Asia, it's often an infusion, so it's taken internally. As a tea or As something like that. As a tea like or something like that. So there's two di- very different uh, approaches that can end up with the same result. So a whole sort of systemic effect. Yeah, yes. Ah, it would be and interesting course, to know, I guess, which is more effective with certain yeah. things. Because, of course, if you're taking it internally, then the enzymes in your, in your gut are going to alter the chemicals and they've got to then get, be absorbed from your gut and get into the bloodstream. Um, so, you know, there's so much we just don't fully understand. I think that's why it's so exciting to be doing this type of work now, because there are advances in molecular biology and our analytical equipment that we can go back and study these plants. And um, just quickly before we wrap up, do you take any herbal remedies yourself? Um, well, f- no, I don't actually. <laughs> uh, would I? Um, yes. And I must admit, I would be very interested in taking some Chinese, especially if I knew they were good quality material. So you need to find a, a good Chinese herbalist. Yes. I think something that we have learnt uh, from this evening's uh, programme is that um, if you've got a good herbalist, then hang on to them. But uh, basically, that is the very essence of the whole thing, isn't it? Very much yes. so, yes. Find someone who knows what they're doing. Well, it just remains to say thank you very, very much to our guests, Monique Simmons from the Botanical Gardens at Kew, typing fan from Cambridge University. A massive thanks to Mandy for working the decks with such a prompt through a power cut, (laughs) (laughs) to Sarah for being here and being my medical support next to me and back in the office give them a wave Whoa. we've got the uh, the back the back streets team over there you've been great audience uh, in bbc in the eastern counties and also our podcast listeners around the world thanks very much and good night
Uh, don't forget, next week we'll be looking at the technology of the future and the world of nanotechnology, and we'll be joined by uh, Donald Fitzmaurice, Stephen Webb, David Carey, and Neil Morgan. That's all from The Naked Scientists. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.